0: And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment, food as sport, food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person just like you and me. Ryan Holiday is our guest today. He is the number one New York Times bestselling author of Stillness is the Key, Ego is the Enemy, The Obstacle is the Way, and The Daily Stoic he has a forthcoming book called The Lives of Stoics. I'm super excited about talking to Ryan because I really am a big fan of Stoicism. I think it began with the first time I read God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. You can find Ryan at Ryan Holiday on Instagram or at Daily Stoic or at Daily Dad. Here is my conversation with Ryan Holiday. Ryan Holiday, welcome to the American Glutton podcast.
2: Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for having me.
1: I I guess my first experience with stoicism, I don't even know that it is really, but my first experience with an idea that kind of fits into this was at an AA meeting and, and the serenity prayer. And sure and it's, it's a very empowering idea. And then later I think it was something I, and I don't even really know how to pronounce any of these guys' names, but like Epictetus said, like, it's not what happens, but how you think about what happens. And I'm probably butchering that quote. But these ideas were so radical to me and so different from anything I've, I've, I've grown up thinking about or the way I've thought about it. And your book, The Daily Stoic, has been so helpful to me that I'm just really excited to talk to you. And your new book, The Lives of Stoics, I mean, that's awesome because, like, this dude Epictetus was a slave.
2: Right. No, th- I mean, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's funny. The, the serenity prayer, it feels like this timeless, when, when you hear it, You know, it feels like this timeless idea that must be rooted in some sort of scriptural basis. It's actually invented by Reinhold Niebuhr sometime in the early 1900s. But as a theologian and then uh, sort of hearkening back to a very long tradition in the philosophical world, I think he is relying on, on that idea from the Stoics, and my sort of definition of stoicism, because when people hear that word, they think a whole bunch of things. My my sort of really quick definition of stoicism is basically, we don't control what happens, we control how we respond. Yes. And and so you would like to think that that's something we're all explicitly taught, and somehow we're not. And and like you, when I heard it for the first time, it just sort of you know just hit me really really hard. And. Even though I know it, I still obviously struggle to apply it in my life. But to me, what this philosophy is about is precisely that struggle. It's really obvious, commonsensical ideas put put into practice.
1: Listen, I don't pay attention. If, If there's something that I like or I get something out of it, I don't pay a huge amount of attention to if there's some negative pushback on it but i i have had some conversations with people where they're like ah stoicism that's this brutal thing i don't really see like i read excerpts of the daily stoic all the time and i read marcus aurelius's meditations all the time and these things to me are there's nothing brutal about them at all and and i wonder why how this can be perceived as radical at all really
2: it's a very, you know, it's just strange how things happen. I mean, so the word stoic in the English language means like has no emotions. Ironically, the the oppositional school in ancient Greece was Epicureanism, which if, you know, if you call someone an, an Epicurean, they like to you know, you're call- Yeah, right. You're you're basically calling them a hedonist with 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 no self control, and that's not really what that philosophy means either. So it's, it's very strange just how things happen, but it is important for people to know there's a huge difference between sort of what we call lowercase stoicism and uppercase stoicism, just as in there's a big difference between sort of liberalism, the 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 sort of classical liberalism understanding of, of, you know, sort of democratic thinking, and then the democratic party, you know, like, the, there's the name we give something, and then there's sort of the underlying ideas behind it. And so, yeah, unfortunately, stoicism, people can have this immediate adverse reaction. And I think that deprives them of a whole bunch of wisdom.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, and this is, Born out further and if you just go over to Europe and look at how what liberalism means to them it's very right. very different than what it means to us over here and the word I think ultimately you go back far enough it's just like being free <laughs> right you know? right
2: exactly and so we sometimes end up projecting all this modern baggage onto things and I mean it, it is interesting you know, you read Marcus Aurelius' work, and you're like, this guy isn't a robot. This guy is exactly the opposite of a robot. His diary is filled with, you know, reminders about how he keeps losing his temper and, yeah. you know, how he needs to, you know, he needs to be nicer to people and, and the importance of love and the importance of joy. And so that you, what you're speaking to is the uphill battle of, of my life, the, the the reservations that I try to convince people about, uh, you know, try to, try to dissuade people of in my writing, but yeah, it's, it's a tricky thing.
1: You know, I, I was very, very overweight. I was a drug addict. I later, when I actually started looking at these things, I would have very basically gone like, oh yeah, Epicureanism is like hedonism in the pursuit of pleasure. And, and I, and I can recognize that they're very different now, but I think I was a practicing hedonist for a time unknowingly it was just like in this moment what is going to give me the most pleasure without thinking about the future at all and basically the the minute I started thinking into the future at all and like goals for myself I had to do away with that and I had to Kind of practice temperance and and start to change my life in a way where, okay, this thing happened. If I'm just reacting to everything and thinking immediately about what I want, I might not get the bigger prize that my life could give me. And I, I've found this so helpful. Just in a short sentence can can actually have me thinking about reality differently.
2: Well, it's it, it is really interesting, you know this idea of Epicureanism being sort of a, a path to do and feel whatever you want is ironically, yeah, again, not what Epicureanism right. is about. And in fact, the, the central point of Epicurus is that is is really about simple pleasures. And his, his point, and as I'm sure you lived uh, and experienced quite profoundly, is that actually do, being able to do and doing everything you want is almost like the worst thing you could do. And, and he talks about how very quickly pleasures become the source of significant pain and anguish because we, we're not able to stop. We, we we no longer enjoy them. They have all sorts of, you know, you know it's like, okay, look, you have an affair with, uh, on your wife and you feel a few minutes of pleasure, but then it blows up your marriage and you don't get to see your kids anymore and it costs you half your money, uh, okay, so was that really a pleasurable experience or was it actually, you know, a profound self-inflicted wound that you gave yourself, right? And so the Stoics and and the Epicureans were quite aligned on this. They they really end up just disagreeing on some, some relatively minor issues. And what's fascinating is Seneca. Probably quotes Epicurus more than any other philosopher in his writings, oh, wow. uh, which I which I talk about a little bit of the book. That uh, the, the Stoics were they're like, look, we'll take wisdom from whoever we can get it. But the, but both schools were very much aligned in that it's actually it's not the that that you should never experience any pleasure. It's that moderation was really the key to pleasure, uh, and and for whatever reason, that's an idea that people just have a lot of trouble wrapping their heads around today
1: yeah I, I can i can today find pleasure in a hike and a chicken breast that's grilled i i really truly can now there was a point in time where th- those two things would nauseate me <laughs> you know like truly like the idea of a chicken breast without the skin like like this is this is insane and a hike. What is the point of a hike? Like I could not get the pleasure out of that. Now that pleasure could be simpler than, uh, you know, uh, cocaine and a strip club maybe. Um, but in the long term, it's actually much more profound because I I would experience some ultimately some side effects from drugs and alcohol. And then, uh, just see the 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 way my life was going would be bad so to me it's really it's really interesting to to have the idea of finding pleasure in things that I didn't always I wasn't sure. always aware that there was pleasure to be had
2: well I bet it's ironically you're probably walking around in a general feeling of discomfort and misery whether we're talking hangovers whether we're talking about regret whether we're just talking about your your aching body you know out of breath you know having low energy like one of the things I've always found interesting is like whenever you you end up going on a diet like you say hey I'm going to cut out dairy or I'm going to cut out meat or I'm going to cut out carbs all of a sudden you don't act like you're like okay I feel good then you maybe you introduce one of those items back in you like you have a pizza or something, and then you're just like oh I want to kill myself this is horrendous, <laughs> and you are like wait I, I would have eaten a pizza for dinner a sandwich for lunch and cereal for breakfast before, and and so you really like, I think what's interesting is you just you had no idea how miserable you were until you cut these things out yeah and and one of my favorite little Epicurus stories is there's this letter. It's, all we really have from Epicurus are some letters uh, and some fragmented quotes. But basically some king is a fan of his writings and he says, you know, whatever you want, just ask, I'll give it to you. And Epicurus asks him for uh, a small pot of cheese, which was sort of a delicacy at the time or whatever. And, and the joke is like the man who's supposedly this, you know, horrendous glutton it decides to treat himself... Uh, when any, you know, you can get whatever he wants and, and his treat is, you know, a little bit of cheese. It, we just totally read this whole, we've totally taken the wrong lesson from this guy's life's work uh, because, you know, there, there are people who, who, as you said, would consider something so small nauseating because they have access to so many more immediately gratifying pleasures today.
1: Yeah. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. It is really wild how that works. The things that I considered pleasurable for so long were actually just kind of band-aids to the the pain that I was in. So it was just kind of masking this persistent discomfort. And then you strip it all away. I, you know, it is interesting because I think it's kind of impossible for people to do anything that isn't in the pursuit of pleasure to some degree. And, and whether that is that they are going to feel better about themselves because of what they do or they're going to feel uh, physical gratification immediately. But, but I think that through practice, we can find th- pleasure in things that we, we might not be aware that there's pleasure in.
2: Look, I mean, the human mind is a very insidious thing. I I feel very blessed. I just was never a, a drug or an alcohol person, but I I I have whatever that tendency is. That sort of compulsive. It's like I think it's a it's a mix of a sort of a compulsive, you know, personality, and then some sort of internal distress or anguish that you want to make go away so for me that thing has always been work and and it's it's Uh, i was just talking to my wife about this a few days ago It, it like i'm a very routine based person and so for whatever reason if my routine gets broken up so i'm not able to to do the things i like to do in the order that i do them in but most importantly i'm not able to write I I don't just feel that like oh hey this is a little weird I feel I feel the pain and so it's very obvious to me that part of why I do what I do is 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 in some respects fleeing from a you know a pain or a wound in childhood and I, I I'm fortunate in that it's somewhat of a of an adaptive you know use of that energy right compared to the other things people get hooked on that doesn't mean that it's not an unhealthy compulsion in some way. So we just, we have, human beings have that, and the mind is really good at telling us, like, hey, you're going to die if you don't do this thing, even if that thing is, you know, have sex with someone, or if that thing is, you know, uh, extreme risk-taking or gambling or, in your case, eating or, or drugs. Like, addiction is a very, very tricky thing, and it's got a bunch of different Motivations and they're hard to unpack. Yeah,
1: but you know, I think it is interesting too that you can you can I can experience reading a sentence or two and allowing a, a a peek at a completely different way of examining life and sure and then through further investigation, going like, oh, I can change my mind about any of this stuff. You know, yeah.
2: I, when Marcus Ruta says, you know, when you realize you have. Uh, realize you have power over your own mind and you will find strength. And and what he means by that is we, we have to understand that this is all made up bullshit logic in our heads. You know, the, the, if you don't do this, you will die. That may, that's a, that's a false perception you've picked up. That's then compounded by the uh, addictive components of whatever the substance is, but you have to, the the first sort of task of the philosopher this from Epictetus is the ability to question one's own thoughts. And, and I think 12 step groups are designed to, to cultivate that, but, but we also have to do it, uh, just as, as readers and thinkers and human beings.
1: Do you think this is, this becomes, um, troublesome because so much, and, and i don't mean this in a negative in a negative way uh, but there seems to me that a lot of the belief structures out there in the mainstream are almost religious in nature and that this idea that none of that is true unless you decide that it's true and that you can change your mind about it is actually kind of dangerous to those structures
2: a little bit. I mean, it's it's weird, you know. Jesus and Seneca were born in the same year. Wow, uh, I didn't know. That. And sort of walked the earth at the same time in in the same Roman Empire. Like, if you can wrap your head around how crazy that is, you know. Like, we don't know for sure, but like, there's there's like there's phrases in Marcus Aurelius' Meditations that feel very biblical that, that that could have appeared in Ecclesiastes or 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 you know. Seneca's brother is in the Bible. Uh, he, he adjudicates a case involving uh, St. Paul. So there's this kind of long history of Stoicism and Christianity being sort of on similar paths. I mean, the cardinal virtues of Stoicism are the same as the cardinal virtues in Christianity uh, — courage, justice, uh, temperance, and, and, and wisdom. So it's. I don't think it's that they're they're all made up, and that like that means they're worthless. To me, it's. I actually take the opposite from it. I think about it more as, oh, these people are all independently coming up with very similar ideas, and there's different like whatever suits you, whatever is closer to your experience is probably the one you should go with. But at the core of it we're talking really really similar ideas.
1: Yeah. I didn't mean l- literally religion. Sure. I I'm I'm talking more about like when I I live in Los Angeles, there is a very very clear idea in Los Angeles uh, amongst the people here of the way things should be, right? Yes. And then, you know, I go and work in Louisiana, And there is a very, very different, clear idea of the way things should be there. And I would just say that these these kind of um, structured belief systems are, to my eye, religious um, because it is just values at the end of the day. And so we can put values on anything we want to. And and I'm only saying like – if you, if you have a philosophy that comes forward like this that says, you know, it really is about how you view something, then the the truth that somebody might be holding on to kind of deteriorates a little bit.
2: No, I see what you're saying. And, and, and one of the things that was sort of a breakthrough in my life, I've lived in Los Angeles, I've lived in New York, I've lived... Uh, in a bunch of different places, it was sort of realizing, oh, I've got a really good sense of what I like, who I want to be, what's important to me, what I want my life to look like. But it's very hard for me to do that when you're surrounded by all these other people with very different ideas or with pressures that that sort of like – you know, when I lived in new york i I've, I've almost never made more money than I've lived in New York. I've never had more opportunities to do cool stuff, but I was not happy and I found that what was happening was it was sort of getting caught up in the pace that everyone else was operating by and so one of the reasons I ended up moving i moved to to Texas and I moved outside uh you know out out in the country outside austin was was not so much that I was super aligned with whatever's happening here, but more that I had sort of the freedom and the pace to sort of be more in control of my own life and how I wanted it to be with less sort of pressure and temptation and distraction. And so, you know, I, I think finding, finding the wavelength that you want to be on or the lifestyle that you want and sort of being able to stick to it is really important but it you're right it's very hard when you know everyone around you has taken as gospel a bunch of really unhealthy assumptions about life or the world or or even politics or you know the the you know a way a culture should operate
1: right what whatever it be you could you could choose any one of those things and just go like uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think I think the the best thing to aim for is to determine these things for yourself. And then I recognize that no matter where you are, you're going to be constantly being marketed a point of view. And sure. and it, it is it can be hard to kind of stick to where truth lies for you versus what you're being sold.
2: Yeah, there's a great theater Roosevelt line where he says sort of comparison is the thief of joy And, and so I found, it's like, I love that there are no other writers in the neighborhood that I live in in the small town that I live in. Uh, Even in Austin, all the writers that I know are all very different writers, you know, on their own journeys. And so, you know, there's just no one to compare yourself to. So you get, like, I, I find so often, like, if you looked at it objectively, you'd be ecstatic about what you've accomplished, where you are, what's going on, or at the very least, you'd 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 be confident that you're heading in the direction you want to head. But what happens is then you look around and you see what so-and-so's doing and you look at this or that, or all of a sudden you're not good enough because you're comparing yourself to this, that, and the other. And so, you know... That's just a, I mean, it's a very timeless idea, uh, unfortunately, and the, the Stoics talk about it as well. But it's just, yeah, like, I, I don't know. I just, uh, finding finding that point of enough and being able to feel good is the whole point of all this. And, and a lot of people sort of deprive themselves of that.
1: Yeah, and, and the ability to kind of weed through what we're doing, and maybe be able to find other ways to do what feels good, or find new things that feel good that might lead us to broader objectives than maybe we were headed towards.
2: That's right. That's right. Yeah. You know, it's just so easy to sort of live and breathe your work, and then internalize all the assumptions, and then it's never enough, and you got to do this, this, and this, and and you know, so the stove would say like. You're gonna die, so right. you know.
1: <laughs> smile uh, back. That's right. what we can yeah. do. We smile back, right? At yeah. Death?
2: They're like, look, like, like one of the, I think one of the most fascinating parts of of meditations is you have Mark Zorilla, like the most famous man in the world as he's writing this thing, the most powerful man in the world, and it's over and over again. He's like, hey, like, does anyone remember Vespasian? You know, this is like the emperor that comes like two or three before him, he's like, who's still around from the court of Augustus? You know, he's like, he's like, whatever happened to Alexander the Great? You know, and he's saying, my favorite, he goes, people who, long, and this this applies certainly to your industry and, and to mine as well, he goes, people who long for posthumous fame forget that the people in the future will be just as stupid as annoy- and as annoying <laughs> as the people who are alive right now. And so, you know, you find these people are motivated by this, like, I got to, you know, I got to make something so they remember me. And and he's like, you're not going to be around, you know, like. Right.
1: It doesn't matter.
2: You won't enjoy it. So, like, try not to be unhappy now based on this dim hope that you'll live forever in immortality because that's preposterous.
1: Yeah. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Okay. So. The Lives of Stoics. I I read this title and my first thought my first reaction is a little bit of fear of like okay. shit am I going to be super disappointed. <laughs> you know, and and I know I'm not really uh, just based on my base understanding of dudes like Marcus Aurelius uh like I'm not disappointed in his life. What a fascinating life that dude led. But like many of the other ones who I am so impressed by these little nuggets of wisdom that have truly altered my life. So I I do get a little bit scared. Like, are there big disappointments? And then I go like, well, they're human beings. So they're, they're, they're fallible.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think that that is the the trick. Although it's interesting too, like even the idea that these philosophers had lives, like nobody thinks, but is this Harvard professor nice to his wife? You know, or because like, We've totally given up on the idea that this philosophy, that philosophy in the modern world should have any practical basis or in any way inform day-to-day living. And I think that's really, really a shame, yeah. right? Um, we, we've, we've come to take philosophy to mean these kind of abstract questions. You know, like Elon Musk famously has sort of popularized this, this question of like, how do we know we're not living in a computer simulation? And like these are the kinds of problems that philosophers are trying to crack. And it's like ghost would be like, who gives a shit? You know, um, what what am I supposed to do with this information? Yeah. Uh, you know, Marcus Aurelius was like, how do I prevent everyone from dying in the Antonine Plague? You know, Seneca's question was like, Nero, the Emperor of Rome, is my boss, and yet. If I leave the administration, he will be worse than if I stay, right? It's a very, very modern dilemma, as, as you can imagine. And so, so yeah, the, the premise of the book is, well, what did these figures actually do? How do they live? Where do they live up to it? Where do they fall short of it? And, and Stoicism is particularly, is a particularly relevant philosophy to ask it of because to the philosophers, to the Stoics, there really was no point of the philosophy if you weren't living the ideas.
1: Right. This is, this is fascinating that you brought up, like, is the Harvard professor nice to his wife? And, and, and I've been thinking about this a lot because we have a a real movement today that like, you must be nice. Do you, do you see that happening? This, this whole, like, like with, with Ellen, Ellen wasn't nice to people. Have you watched it's, the um, the Last Dance series? Yes. Yes. So I look at I look at this. I wasn't even really a basketball fan. I I, I am converted. I am now an absolute basketball fan after <laughs> watching this. And I look at Michael Jordan, and obviously I lived through the '90s, so I knew who he was, and I was obviously impressed by him. But watching this. I like I like desire now to uh experience watching basketball and the thing that is kind of hammered into you is he was not nice he was he was decent he was a decent person but not nice and what, what, what can we learn from the Stoics about this idea that we have to be nice? Like, uh, you talk about Marcus Aurelius dealing with this plague, and it's like, well, what if he was nice to everyone, but because of that, a bunch of people died from the plague? Like, at what point do we stop valuing that so much and value our objectives?
2: It's it's tricky. I mean, wh- look, one of the things he writes in Meditations, he says he, he says. Uh, don't go around expecting Plato's Republic. You know, he's like, this is the fucking real world. Shit happens. People are not nice. You got to do stuff, right. right? I mean, this is a guy who leads the Roman army in war. He orders executions. Like it is certainly a pragmatic leader as as well as an idealistic one. Your point about Jordan not being nice. I have a whole chapter about him in my book. Stillness is a key because he is fascinating. You have, you have this guy who's the greatest basketball player ever lived and yet was sort of profoundly fueled by anger you know nursing of grudges uh... desire to sort of crush and destroy and the little opponents and it serves him well to some respect but it, uh, there's a fascinating Wright thompson profile of of jordan i think celebrating ten years of retirement you don't get the sense that jordan's having a great time right, right? Um both in basketball and then out of basketball, so it's 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 hard. I don't think niceness for its own sake is that important. And I, your point about Ellen is a good one. It's like, look, you don't you don't become like the first gay uh, female talk show host, entertainment powerhouse, if you just roll over and take stuff. You know what I mean? Like right. you, there. It requires. The, to master any field, particularly a competitive one, requires drive. It requires, you know, the ability to make hard decisions. It requires an indifference to, you know, sometimes other people's feelings. So it is weird that we're suddenly pretending that, that you know, she was like a little old lady who just wanted to get along with everyone. At the same time, we also it's, – it's weird. We have that, and then we also seem to be – like I'm not a fan of political correctness, and I think uh, it can be stifling and problematic when we're, you know, sort of like trying to protect everyone's feelings all the time. At the same time, another portion of society has seemed seems to be celebrating meanness for its own sake.
1: Right. I would say that these are just the, the same thing done in opposite ways.
2: To- totally. It's like, look, like truth is important. Saying something... Just because you know it will hurt someone is not courageous. It's awful, right? right. And so so there seems, it's like, on the one hand, uh, you know, we seem to be, you know, talking about niceness and, and it's so important. And then on the other hand, there's this whole part of society that just wants to humiliate and mock and own or dunk on people, to use the internet term, because that's somehow good for its own sake. So it's like, just be respectful and nice. It's not that hard.
1: Yeah. you. I think you don't necessarily have to have one in order to prove that the other is unnecessary. Right.
0: code buttery exclusions apply see site for details for me i i
1: look back to uh, like stanley kubrick was notoriously not a nice guy i would love to have been in a stanley kubrick movie and have the dude yell at me like i like to to be in that position for me i'm in i don't mind if i enter into something And I go, like, you're my leader, you're my director, I'm following what you say, and I believe that you're going to take us down a path that is going to get us whatever objective we're we're going after, I don't mind a a little bit of yelling and a little bit of not being nice. So the idea that, you know, we sacrifice a Stanley Kubrick, we sacrifice a Michael Jordan, we sacrifice an Ellen because – they weren't nice but also because like this idea of nice is totally subjective so maybe they're maybe your idea of what nice is is a little bit askance to what mine is you know what i mean like who the hell knows at that point point? and i completely agree with what you're saying we don't need people just going around intentionally upsetting people to prove that nice is not necessarily all it's cracked up for
2: Yeah, and and look, uh, the the Stoics were fond of this expression. I think this is where these things get important. The Stoics believe sort of character is fate. So if you're a shitty person, no one's saying you might not be successful, but you're eventually going to make enemies, make enough mistakes, piss off enough people, you know, get a big enough ego that you'll make some terrible flaw, you know, some terrible mistake. And and so I, I think, you know, if you can you can only fake it so long you can only fool people so long you can only get away with being a monster for so long so i think ultimately like what these things come down to is character does sometimes does a leader need to make hard decisions does a leader need to you know bust a few heads and you know bruise a, bruise a few uh, egos yes probably like i don't think that's a character issue the problem is is like when it this seems to be just like a general way that someone treats people and, and I don't know. I, I I'm not convinced that Michael Jordan not being nice to people was why he was a great basketball player. You know, I think that's the other thing. It's like when you when you look at if my books have been you know, I've been fortunate enough for my books to be successful in sports I've met all these different champions and athletes and coaches and you know you let's say Jordan has five or six rings and you meet someone what is Jordan has six I think you, you you meet someone with four and you're not like oh I see why you didn't win two more if you're right. not a big enough asshole okay. you know like
1: you know that's totally fair I I I I like I like the point you're making and I and I tend to agree with you I just think and and but at the end of the day Whoever has four is not Jordan. Sure,
2: but like you know, Tom Hanks is one of the greatest actors of all time. You know, isn't going around raping anyone. You know, like, no.
1: and I've, I've I've hung out with. Yeah, he's a, he is the nicest guy.
2: You can be extraordinarily talented and not be a shitty person. And I think that's really what stoicism is about. I, when when people think like this sort of philosophical stuff or this these these sort of ethics or guidelines, it's like, well, won't it hold you back in some way? It's like, no, Like, Seneca was the greatest playwright of his time and the most powerful politician of his time and wealthy and all these other things, you know? same Marcus Aurelius holds absolute power and it doesn't corrupt him like it's possible to do it it's just harder right. and and so a lot of people don't do it and and i mean look like i'm a i'm a very driven person i want to sell lots of books i want to write lots of books i want to i want to be as good as i possibly can be uh at my thing But there's also things that I value as much or more than that. So like, I think sometimes what happens is, and this goes to this idea of moderation, we just get really out of whack. So so somebody values their career more than anything. So they're extremely talented at directing movies, but meanwhile, like their their kids are are taking care of but want mom or dad to be around, you know, or, yeah. or, or whatever we, we, it, so to me it's all about balance and what I think a lot of times what you see in these extreme cases is, is just a lack of that balance.
1: Right. Like if, if Marcus Aurelius was only focused on expanding Rome, if that was it, yeah, maybe he expands it a little bit more than he did or, or, maintains it or whatever, but he, you could see other areas suffering.
2: And what does it matter? Do you know what I mean? Like, let's say Jordan could have like, so Jordan, let's, let's, let's say that at the end of the day, it was the cruelty that won him the two extra rings, right? That it's the the 10% difference That's the difference between the second best basketball player of all time and the absolute best basketball player of all time. Who cares you know like well like, he, well clearly it's really he not cares. that
1: important it's not that important for me either I, I think at the end of the third ring, I see him he you know and and it's hard because it's all retrospective, but I go like, well, he's Jordan at that point he's solidified who Jordan is when he goes off to play baseball so yeah the the additional rings don't matter to me at all but They clearly mattered to him. I just think.
2: No, I mean, the stoics would say, what do they matter? Like, one of my favorite quotes is, he goes, uh, Mark Surrealis goes, Alexander the Great and his mule driver are both, both died. The same thing happened to both. And they're both buried in the same ground. And his point, obviously, Alexander the Great accomplished more things than his mule driver and probably, you know, was was, you know, realized his potential more. Although who knows. But the, the point is, death is this great equalizer. And so the the question I think ultimately is like, were you a good person or not? Did you live up to your beliefs or not? Or did you turn yourself into a machine for accomplishing and doing? And to what end?
1: Right. Yeah, for to what end? I mean, that's the best question of all. To what end? Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back.
2: I mean, what if I told you that uh, you you'd never get, you never got sober. You just stayed unhealthy and fat. But you know, you would have won uh, two Academy Awards. Uh, like
1: I uh, traded, I traded all for my life today. I don't sure. care. Like, and even as far as acting goes, I, I I had a much more consistently successful movie career as a heavier person than I do today. Now, granted, there's a pandemic and stuff, and it's a little <laughs> bit weird to work for the past however many months. But you know, I I I take that point. I personally enjoy being nice. I I find it to be, I feel better. I get pleasure about out of uh being kind to people. But I also I also look at some leaders and I go like I'm not as driven as that person towards I'm driven towards my own personal goals in a very rigorous manner. But like if if I go in to do a movie, that is not making that movie the greatest movie of all time is definitely not going to surpass all my other goals. I'm happy that the director has that as his goal. I'm if I was on a basketball team and I had a, a captain who was who was going, I'm going to take on the burden of making this the best team and it's going to make me a little bit irritable and I'm not going to be nice, but you don't have to. I respect that.
2: Yeah, look, I think we uh, but, but this this is this is this is what the Stoics are talking about. We all have different roles, right? And and I know that feels weird because we want to believe it. we all have different goals, different purposes, different gifts. I know we want to believe that everyone's the same, that 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 you know this is all. Uh, we all have complete agency and control, and anyone can be anything they want. But the truth is, different people, because of their experiences, because of their gifts, whatever, have different talents, and I think different. Different missions on this planet. And I don't think really one is better than the other. I think what matters is do you fulfill that destiny to the best of your ability or not, or do you sort of refuse that call? And so, you know, Marcus Aurelius is important to the Roman Empire, but so are all the other people that we've never heard of. Um, it's just we, we tend to worship and admire one more than the other because one is more famous than the other. But and I don't know. Like I just feel like everyone has a job. Your and your real job, though, is to do whatever that job is. Yes, uh, that's just my. That's that's where I've come down on it.
1: I love that. I think that's the uh, for me. That's the most workable philosophy. Re- it really, truly is because it it allows me to move forward and and do what I need to do, and it doesn't give me the burden of anything else.
2: Yeah. And it just, I think the, the, the only caveat the Stokes would add to it, you know, Marcus says, you know, the fruit of this life is uh, good character and works for the common good. And so I think we have in our modern society, you know, often come to associate success or solely with money or fame. And I'm not saying those are meaningless things, but you know, is there a scenario where I could have written my books differently and sold more copies? Yes. Is there equally, you know, uh, a scenario where I could have written them so they were, you know, fancier and more impressive? Uh, Maybe got more critical accolades, but sold fewer copies. That is true too. You know, what I'm trying to do is write them in the way that I think they were made to be written and most urgently, have the most impact for the most people. So I think, you know, again, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor on the front lines of, of COVID 19. I'm not a philanthropist and I'm, you know, not a, not a, you know, head of state. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not at all overstating the significance of what I do. But I think, you know, also understanding that we have an obligation to each other and to contribute is an important part of all of this as well.
1: I totally agree, and and I think the way that you have presented this information and set it out, at least from what I've experienced so far, it is a great. You know, it is. I never went to college. I barely graduated high school. I didn't even actually graduate high school. So, I'm not. I'm not a super intellectually bright guy, and the your book. You know, it just was like a, a lightning rod for me, and so I thank you for that. I think you've done a fantastic job, and I'm so excited to to look at them and see human beings and see possible shortcomings, but also how this was applied. and And I'm I'm really excited about this next book.
2: Well, thank you. Yeah, and look, I'm a I'm a college dropout too, so I'm trying to write to to you know regular people who are just looking for you know Seneca goes, what does philosophy offer philosophy offers counsel you know it's there to help. it's in the way that a 12-step group is there to help the way that a church you know Bible study group is there to help the way that a I don't know a suicide hotline is there to help like philosophy is supposed to be there to make us better and to be something you lean on. So I feel like uh, that's a that's a long-standing tradition that, you know, I'm just hoping my books can be a part of.
1: It's So great. Ryan, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this, and I love talking to you. Thanks, man. You're, you're too nice. I'll talk to you soon. Appreciate it. Bye. And now for the Q&A. Noah writes, With gyms being closed where I live and working a 8 to 630 job, what is the best way to lose fat relatively fast? He goes on to say, I am 350 pounds and just testing my blood pressure. It is high. So I'm at a dangerous breaking point. Seeing what you've accomplished has pushed me to want to be just like you. Thank you, Noah. He go. he says also, I admire and look up to you and how you've transformed your body and mind to maximize your life. Okay, Noah, a couple things. I, too, understand the feeling of needing this to be as fast as possible. I completely empathize with you there. I have found it is better to take a a bit of a larger picture of my life and, and realize that I might have better results if I slow down that urgency and spread it out over a longer period of time you can lose a a ton of weight on the scale very, very fast. But that's going to be fat, lean tissue, and water. If you want to really target fat loss, I think, well, this is what worked for me, that it's better to slow it down a bit, look for like no more than like 1.5% of your body weight in loss per week. So at 350 pounds, like, I wouldn't be trying to lose more than four pounds a week, honestly, and that will go down as you lose weight. It will, the number will become lower and lower and lower as you lose weight. I would also suggest throwing in many maintenance periods and um, over the course of your career losing fat. Uh, Maintenance period is not where you go back to normal habits. It's just an increase in Food up to the point where you're neither gaining or losing weight. This will let your body kind of calm down and relax because dieting is stressful to your body. and And then when you go back to weight loss or cutting, it will be easier to lose weight. That is what I've found to be true. I know the feeling of waking up and going like, "This is out of control. I need this to stop. I'm going to do everything to make it happen right now." But You've got to also recognize the fact that you – I don't know how old you are. You don't say how old you are here, but you didn't wake up and gain 350 pounds overnight. Now, you don't have 350 pounds to lose. You didn't um, find yourself at 350 pounds overnight. It took time to – put that weight on and as you did that your body got used to that and and it and it's probably said a number of times look at all this stored energy we have in our savings account that that we're super safe now i don't want to give this up because i can use this if there's ever like a real severe famine and now you're going to challenge your body and go like, we're going to we're gonna use this savings to exist right now. That's how we're going to live. We're going to reduce our food intake and we're going to dip into our savings account of stored energy as fat. I think the best thing to do is to uh, allow this to take its time, to really get comfortable with the fact that it's not going to happen super fast. It's going to take time and maybe at the end of it, you will come to a place where having done periods of cutting and maintenance where you can kind of see what, what you'll need to do to maintain your weight over the rest of your life versus trying to lose it really, really fast and having no tools at your disposal for when you're done with that loss to go on with life. That would be my advice to you, Noah. If you have a question you would like me to answer on the show, please submit it to AmericanGlutton.net. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee, and as always, joined by my chaperone, Paige Dorian. Follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely.
0: Mom deserves better than a drugstore card.